Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It's a terribly deflating feeling if you're English, as Gareth Southgate's young team proved they really are England by nearly coming home. We look at what Euro 2020 has meant for a country which has decided that maybe it does like a bit of politics in its sport. Plus, as the government begins to display the jitters over its plans to bin all coronavirus restrictions on July the 19th, that's next week, can we bet on people's common sense and personal responsibility to keep virus numbers down? And, as some limited summer travel opens up, we ask which politicians could we stand to be stuck on a desert island with, and who would make us go full Lord of the Flies. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. As you know, we've got a live show coming up. The Bunker versus Oh God, What Now? is on Tuesday, the 10th of August at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. We've sold a lot of tickets, which is very pleasing. The COVID situation is fluid, and some listeners have been in touch about coronavirus policy in the venue. Just to let you know, it'll be a fully masked venue, and capacity will be limited to ensure social distancing. There's enhanced cleaning of the venue too, and we know that our listeners are very conscientious and will probably be double jabbed as well, so it should be fully COVID compliant. We're very much looking forward to it. Tickets are out now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Now let's meet today's panel. Marie Leconte is a political journalist and her new book Honourable Misfits, a brief history of Britain's weirdest, unluckiest and most outrageous MPs is out on July the 22nd. Welcome back to the bunker Marie. Oh, Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming. Do, do you ever look at the news while you're sort of working on your book about Britain's weirdest, unluckiest and most outrageous MPs and think there is no way the people I'm researching can ever compete with this lot? So, you know, in a weird way, actually, I think it was the opposite in that I, you know, I kind of thought that, you know, our kind of proper politicians was pretty poor. But then researching the book, I was like, actually, this may be the best people we've have ever had. Like, somehow these are the finest minds um, in like, <laughs> political history. <laughs> How the hell is that? I mean, you've got a guy, well, I suppose you do have a guy in the book who went out hunting in the nude, despite owning 700 pairs of boots and 1,000 hats. Yes. Um, but that's so many, you know, who was it? One of my favourite ones, uh, Hugh was the MP for um, Darlington for a bit and then left. And very long story short, um, ended up, I think, becoming friend of the Nazis, despite being a Jewish man himself, was a Buddhist monk uh, for a while in Asia, uh, formed a cult. Yeah, and again, you know, and represented Darlow for a while. Um, so again, <laughs> weirdly, the, the current crop, not that bad. It's extremely dispiriting that these people are apparently the smartest ones and my ancestors still got conquered by the shit ones from before. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite bad, isn't it? Who is this distant voice from the future? We'll find out in a minute. Marie, there was also, there was a, you're a lobby correspondent, tramper of the halls of Westminster. What, what's going on with this story, this astonishing story at the weekend of Robbie Gibb, uh, BBC board member, former comms director to, to Theresa May, I think he was also in the Bee Gees, trying to block an appointment to the BBC uh, on political grounds. Jess Brammer was going to oversee BBC news channels and Gibb texted the news and current affairs director, Fran Unsworth, to say she cannot make this appointment and the government's fragile trust in the BBC will be shattered. Gibb is a former BBC journalist. How, how is he able to imagine he can do this? So I think I'm not massively surprised he's tried to do that because I think he, he's long been thought of, I think, in certain circles as a bit of a nutter. I am quite surprised that clearly the BBC got called feet slightly in terms of hiring Jess. Although, you know, we, we still don't know what's going to happen. She may well end up getting hired after all. You just heard his voice then, comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah joining us. And he went to the Denmark game in a Union Jack cape, did you not? I did indeed. I, did. I was trying to channel the spirit of 66 where you saw it was all a, it was all sort of Union flags rather than the crosses of St. George. And also the Union flag is the only one that for some reason my mum inexplicably owns. Oh, right. Well, it's good to have. Uh, did you get mm -hmm. stick from members of other nations in the United Kingdom saying what you're wearing that for? It's an England game. Uh, no, because I like to think that I was fundamentally channeling Nino Arias and Vasco Govinda Gear and uh, Mira Sal in Goodness Gracious Me and doing my best <laughs> impersonation of the, the Coopers. Uh, 
Uh, we're going to talk about the results and the meaning of the tournament in a minute, but there was a, a bit of a cringe-inducing moment that th- was thrown up by it in the in the week. When English Heritage released uh, a project on the names of England, they traced the surnames of um, people in England and cited Raheem Sterling would discover that his name has Scottish origins, that he's one of 1,972 adult Sterlings, and they most commonly live in Durham. And this obviously made everybody think, well, h- how do you think he got that name? It's not a happy story. Yeah, well, it, it's sort of a thing of like, let's have a think about why this might have happened. And while we're not sure, or, or rather, I'm not sure, I think you can make a pretty mm. uh, reasonable, educated guess uh, as to it. My friend, the uh, comedian Pierre Novelli, has a joke uh, that he likes doing near the beginning of sets where he talks about having a French first name and an Italian surname and growing up in South Africa and then growing up on the Isle of Man. And that the reason for all of this is empire. And that's always the reason for anything that you don't immediately understand. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's probably an interesting way uh, thing to keep in the back of your head. And completing the panel, it's the Atlantic's Yasmin Sarhan, introduced as British journalist Yasmin Sarhan by Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC this week. That must have been news to you, Yasmin. Yeah, I woke up to it and I was wondering if he knew something I didn't. Like, like a reading for England automatically confers like honorary British citizenship or something. But, you know, if I ever do apply for citizenship, I'll probably cite him as a character reference. So. It's, a, it's a good one. You just did a, a big piece for the Atlantic on uh, Gergely Karashan, the, the mayor of Budapest, on the resistance to Orban. We have destroyed the myth that Fidesz is unbeatable, he said. W- were you optimistic after talking to him? <laughs> Not really. And, and mm. I don't say that because I don't think that he and the other opposition candidates are incapable. Um, in fact, the polls think that they are. They show that the opposition parties, which have united um, basically to, to run a joint campaign against Orban when the country goes to elections next year, um, those show that they absolutely can win. In fact, Fidesz, which is Orban's party, party is um, running neck and neck with the United Opposition. But they face some pretty major challenges as well, among them being the fact that they have to run a primary contest, which is going to happen later this fall to determine who among them is going to be the candidate for prime minister. Karishan is thought to be um, the favorite for that, but there are some other candidates as well who are going for it too. Um, and that person needs to keep a very diverse coalition together. I mean, this coalition spans the former far right to the green left. Um, so you can imagine that there are probably quite a lot of differences between them in terms of policy that that they need to sort of maintain. And um, if they do win, then the real work begins with, which is effectively the process of de-orbanizing the country. We keep holding out for these tide of populism turning moments, don't we? That the, 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 the idea that something's going to happen that's going to reverse the, the rightward authoritarian flow. Do you think we're ever going to get one? I mean, I think you wrote in your piece for the first time in a decade in Hungary, nobody knows what the result's going to be. Yasha Monk actually had a really good piece in The Atlantic about how we might have reached peak populism. And he, he basically writes that, you know, there are a number of reasons to be optimistic. And the Hungarian opposition is one of those reasons. I think, you know, if they succeed, um, not just in winning the election, but in undoing some of Orban's more damaging policies, then it's a strategy that I think could prove pretty instructive for opposition movements and other budding autocracies. I mean, we saw in Israel, and obviously that's a very very different context, but we saw in Israel that a united opposition was able to oust Benjamin Netanyahu after more than a decade in power. So we're certainly seeing, you know, possibilities and, and, and reasons for hope. And we're also seeing a number of populist leaders who are becoming incredibly unpopular. So I don't know if we're quite at a, at a turn, so to speak, but, but there are definitely reasons to be hopeful. Right, let's take one last look at the football while we can. The tournament's over, but has it changed England as a country? It seems an awful long time ago that we were being assured that the national team would definitely go out early because they insisted on taking their knee on the pitch. Tory MPs were informing us that they wouldn't watch these overpaid Marxists, and the Home Secretary was telling fans it's fine to boo people who are protesting against racism. Now, even though England couldn't quite close the deal, the country seems far fonder of its modest, humble young team and a leader who takes responsibility for failure as well as success, probably happier than they are with their politicians. Ah, here, was this a victory for Gareth Southgate's deep woke agenda? (laughs) Well, this is the thing, like referring to it as a deep woke agenda or claiming that all of these players are doing this because they're Marxists is a sort of, it's a funny glib thing, but it's baffling to me how many people 
like seem genuinely to believe that right mm. like uh and it, it fundamentally is just a case of this seems like a decent group of very young men uh and who are being led by an extremely decent older guy and you know it's i, I remember reading about how uh, there were figures in the Conservative Party who were convinced that Marcus Rashford was all along working with Labour in order to do all this stuff about food poverty among children. I like it. It's just extremely distressing that you would think that there has to be an some sort of semi nefarious agenda uh, behind that sort of thing. And if you're just claiming that uh, people being decent and looking after hungry kids and trying to ensure that the country might be a little less hostile to people who might not look like uh, everyone else. If you think that that's a fundamental attack on uh, your way of living and your uh, politics, I think that that probably calls for a lot more introspection. As you said earlier, uh, it took no time at all for hideous racism to, to re-emerge the abuse of Sarkat and Rashford, the Rashford mural vandalised. Do you think, I mean, I know it's it's a big call to make, but is this, is this something that w- will always underlie English society or is it the kind of, is it the spasm of disappointment, rage and hatred from that underbelly of football that we've never really been able to yeah. get rid of? I like thinking about that uh, Gramsci thing of the old being dead, the new not yet being born, and in the interregnum, many morbid symptoms appearing. And I like Mm. that because I think that probably no one in human history has ever thought that they lived in anything other than the interregnum where morbid symptoms were appearing. So Mm. I've absolutely uh, no clue uh, which way it's going to go. All I do know is that obviously, like, when you're an ethnic minority or something or I suppose any kind of minority, it's going to be a thing that people will latch onto in order to attack because it's like you've you've got a sticker on your forehead saying there is yeah. one thing that you can do which probably maximizes your chances of ruining my day. And it's a, a credit to these uh, young men that they don't seem to be letting it uh, ruin their day, but they shouldn't have to be in that position. When Boris Johnson and Priti Patel uh, condemned this racist stuff today there's a chorus of people saying with some justification that they themselves had enabled it that by uh saying oh yeah boo away early on in the tournament they'd effectively legitimized this kind of stuff what what do you think I think that the Prime Minister has spent the last five years in a hot dog costume uh in a shop that a hot dog car has driven itself into uh and that's basically Mm. my position of uh Boris, we're all trying to find the guy who did this, Johnson. <laughs> Marie, Johnson deleted his Twitter profile pic of himself in that stupid Boris England shirt at one minute past midnight <laughs> on uh, Monday morning, not like a couple of hours after the result. I never supported the team. I've never heard of football. Do you, do you think, I mean, the, the, all the talk was like, what, you know, what benefit is Boris Johnson and the Conservatives is going to derive if England win this thing? Do you think that... He has derived any political benefit at all because it was it was a great campaign. It was a great, you know, a, a great, decently fought tournament. Do you think he has derived any political benefit from it, even though he's suddenly trying to dissociate himself from it? I don't actually think he has. And and, and again, I think that was kind of the joke, um, you know, I had with friends at the beginning of the tournament, a tournament of saying, you know, obviously, on the one hand, we want England to win. On the other, do we want Boris Johnson to be prime minister for the next 15 years? Eh. Um, mm. You know, because, because that's normally the joke, isn't it? Of, you know, if, if a football team does very well, then the prime minister um, in power at that point will just sort of like ride to victory forevermore. But I, I'm not really sure that's the case. I, I can't think of anyone really who would associate that team, those players and that manager with the current government. And again, as we've been talking about as well, the fact that, you know, several members of that government basically went up against the team, you know, on several things quite early on, especially. So I, I don't actually think it's going to really do him any good. I mean, also, it's what the team stand for is is kind of antithetical to what the government stood for, isn't it? It's like they, they you know, it's this. This is not simply symbolic. This is who they are and, and what they are. And one of the standout quotes from the tournament was Gary Neville effectively subtweeting Boris Johnson in his in his, uh, in his after match analysis. The standard of leaders in this country in the last couple of years has been poor. And looking at that man there, he's talking about Southgate. That's everything a leader should be: respectful, humble, telling the truth. You know, we've we've had a, a surfeit of uh, hot takes and think pieces about how Southgate is the new model for leadership and the new model for sort of British English decency. Do you think that's an idea of leadership that can stick? Oh God, I mean, I hope so. Uh, mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, y- yes and no, but then that's easier said than done, isn't it? But then, so mm. that being said, actually, what one thing that did I did find quite heartening was that. I think quite cynical people, you know, were saying throughout the tournament, oh, well, you know, people are saying that about Southgate and Southgate this, Southgate that. 
Um, but they'll change their tune once we lose because we will lose because we're England. And and actually, I feel like, you know, obviously, admittedly, has been under 24 hours at time of recording. I don't think people really have done that and no one has really turned on him. Um, mm. so, so perhaps, you know, perhaps that is a sign of kind of, you know, br- brighter things to come, I guess. Yeah. Um, British journalist, Yasmin, uh, I saw you hedging your bets with an England shirt <laughs> and a Peroni beer. <laughs> not mad at anyone as they say you spent a lot of time explaining to your fellow americans how england has invested itself in the team and how it, it you know it, it's a model for a more diverse and responsible england is that because we don't really have any other english institutions you know it's like all our major institutions in this country are identified with britain you know royal family has a parliament a british broadcasting corporation there aren't really anything any things that you can say that is english I mean, I think it's certainly part of it. And I think sport is such a, you know, such an easy thing to kind of come to identify with. And outside of sport, there just aren't too many institutions that are like just English. Um, and I'm excluding things like the Church of England. I remember getting yelled at by a couple of a couple of people <laughs> on Twitter about excluding that. But, um, but, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, I think, you know, Englishness doesn't have any political institutions. It has no distinct national anthem. Um, it has a flag, but this, this has been, you know, a pretty difficult one to embrace owing to its associations with far right groups in the past. Um, and, you know, of course, it doesn't help that there are a lot of outsiders, including many Americans, who, you know, see Englishness and Britishness quite interchangeably. I mean, you might recall that Donald Trump picked up on this. He said, I remember it was, um, I think he was giving a speech somewhere, one of his famous rallies. And he said, I have great respect for the UK, the United Kingdom, great respect. People call it Britain. They call it Great Britain. They used to call it England, different parts. <laughs> and that, like, at the time... <laughs> At the time, that was seen as like, oh my god, like what a dipshit! Like he doesn't know. (laughs) He actually kind of, I think, accidentally stumbled on something quite astute, which is kind of unusual for for the former president. Which is that it's true that you know, for outsiders, people see Britain, but I think you know, England is so defined by the bigger elements within which it finds itself, whether that's you know, empire as we were talking about, or you know, the royal family or the UK or whatever. That we kind of, you know, it doesn't, it hasn't really found. I think it's had more difficulty than the other nations in sort of clamping onto its own identity. And football has been the easiest sort of foundation, I guess, to sort of trying to build that. Uh, But yeah, who knew Donald Trump would um, pick up on that? Well, there's there's an apocryphal story that Axel Rose once opened a gig in Scotland by saying, "Hello, Glasgow, England." (laughs) And you can imagine, you can imagine how that would have gone down. Um, if I can just interrupt, I had so I only read as obviously I'm you know being foreigner as well. I realised my mistake when so I think we had a substitute teacher who came in when I was in high school in France who was from Belfast, um, and I was really the student who spoke the kind of best English, so we got along quite well until crucially until the moment I think I raised my hand and I asked something, and I was like, so you know, but as, as an English person, could you explain this? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> no, because again, for me, that was English and British were the same mm. thing as a you know as a foreigner. So yeah, no, that that was very bad. It was very bad. And then he just taught us about the Irish famine um, for an hour. Anyway, I bet that yeah. served. That, so that served you right, <laughs> Yasmin. You, you also pointed out how football is really the only arena where men can express their feelings and have a big cry without it being sort of looked askance at. What do you make of the, of the, you know, the violence in the West End and the attacks on the Danish family, the abuse of German kids on social media, That this idea that you've got this bipolar thing where it's like you're crying your eyes out in the stands, but simultaneously behaving in this violent and uh, obnoxious manner, often to people who, who have no means of defending themselves? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly limits to like... <laughs> I, I think when I was, you know, talking about that on, on Twitter, um, you know, we were thinking more of like Southgate tenderly mm. hugging, you know, his players after a win or or something like that. That's obviously just another level um, and obviously incredibly terrible. I mean, I, I really felt for the economist editor, Lane Green, who who wrote about the abuse he and his family who, who were wearing Denmark um, jerseys, that what they experienced at that game. But But, you know, I don't think that that gross behavior undermines the basic thesis, which is that this is a team that demonstrates Englishness at its best. Um, Mm. And I think it's unfortunate that it would have even pockets of fans that would go against that in like such a crass way. But, you know, I think crucially how 
the nation responds to that, you know, that racism and that abuse and that violence when it occurs and, you know, how they choose to celebrate the team, even in defeat, um, I, I think is kind of what matters, hopefully, and, and what would help kind of define it. Um, I, I think there was a lot of, I certainly got a lot of responses after last night with people saying like, ah, oh, you're English, like, you know, you're, you're, you know, anything you said about like the, this team representing Englishness well is like, you know, doesn't stand up anymore because of this. I don't necessarily agree with that, but, but it is terrible. And I, I don't think, you know, as an American, I don't think we really have this same zeal around football, yeah. probably because with the great exception of the women's team, we're, we're not very good at it, but I can't really wrap my head around how losing would cause you to, I don't know, like tear up your own city. That's just insane to me. Well, it was quite a penetrating thing that one of the Danish papers said after Denmark were knocked out by England, which is, let the English party, they have nothing else. And it's kind of... No, that that was Cope. That was Cope. I'm going to be a weird English nationalist on this. 100%. That was just them trying, no, no, I'm not buying that. (laughs) Okay, and that's an honest proco who's neither yeah. English nor Danish. Marie, you're allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, here, just to wrap this bit up, I mean, we hear loads and loads about how it hurts. Being defeated yeah. hurts. But but does it really? I mean, I was sad for the team, and I was a bit disappointed, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't hurt. I wasn't jumping out of the window. Or is that just because I'm middle-aged and I've kind of been through the mill? It hurts. Does it hurt? It did, hurts. did you have a cry? It's did you have a, uh, a cry? I, I didn't cry. No, uh, my flatmate did. Um, right, but, um, but he he has been more invested in football than me for a lot longer. So he was. Uh, it, it was really big for him. But um, I think that you know, there's a, a Kafka quote, something along the line of, uh, "In this love, you're a knife with which I explore myself." And that probably doesn't signal a healthy romantic love, but I think it sums up sport pretty well. And you just written the lyrics for the uh, next official England song to replace <laughs> three lines there. <laughs> Frank and David, I'm coming for you. (laughs) Now, are we masking or not? After incoming Health Secretary Sajid Javid's insistence that all corona restrictions will go on Monday the 19th of July, despite fast-rising rates of infection, the government is now wobbling. Monday's announcement is being billed as a definitive move to personal responsibility, but over the weekend, ministers were already backtracking. Vaccines Minister Nadim Zahawi talked about an expectancy that we should wear masks indoors. Junior Health Minister Edward Agar talked about clear and strong guidance, but we haven't seen any of it yet. Behind it all is the deep suspicion that we're all being enlisted into a giant experiment with herd immunity as its goal all along. And while the government is relying on the vaccine to keep deaths down, there is a huge disparity in vaccination rates in different regions and different ethnic groups. Yasmin, over 100 scientists and doctors signed an open letter accusing the government of conducting a dangerous and unethical experiment by opening up. Uh, And they said that relaxing restrictions when only half the population are fully vaccinated will result in both acute and long term illnesses. They called it dangerous and premature. Are we, and by we, I mean the government, is the government essentially just rolling the dice here? There is something that feels mildly risky about what's happening. And I think that's predominantly because we don't really know what's going to happen after the 19th. We, we can safely assume that COVID cases are going to rise because they're already rising. And we could also probably assume that hospitalizations, although they aren't increasing at the same rate, will also probably um, go up a little bit. Um, but beyond that, it doesn't really feel like we know much. Like I already have some friends who were talking about like, oh, I can already sense that we're like going to go back into lockdown in the winter. And But in fairness to Britain, I don't think it's the only country that is taking this risk, so to speak. I mean, the US, which is also pretty heavily vaccinated, appears to have listed, lifted most of its restrictions. It's kind of hard to judge there because a lot of things are state by state. But, you know, I'm seeing videos of my friends in clubs and maskless mm. and just, you know, living their lives. And Israel's in a similar situation. They're also heavily vaccinated and they lifted all of their restrictions earlier this year. Um, but they've actually since moved to reintroducing um, face masks indoors in a bid to stem arising cases. So it strikes me that whilst Britain wants to take the step, because as Johnson said, you know, if not now, when effectively, it strikes me that we might at least want to learn from the lessons of other countries. And if we're seeing that Israel is reinstituting face masks, we might even just consider being like, ah, maybe we'll keep that one. That one's pretty easy to just hold on to. But what do I know? I want to ask you about herd immunity because the, the term 
became so toxic that it was actually banned from Downing Street briefings internally and externally. Is that effectively what we're going for now? I mean, Public Health England is saying 90% of British people have antibodies, so it, it could be that we're close to achieving it. But, I mean, it's such a politically toxic concept. Has it had to be wrapped up in other terminology? Yeah, there, I don't know. I've always been slightly confused by herd immunity because I feel like I've read and heard different things by immunologists who know a lot more about it than I do, talking about how, you know, we can never really actually achieve it. And, you know, what role do the variants play? You know, if you have antibodies to one sort of variant, does are you still protected from the others? It does feel, though, and I'm saying this purely off of conversations with friends, it does feel like there's this sense of, let's just let everyone get it now so they don't get it in the winter when it can cause problems. And, and, and of course, do I think that a bunch of people are going to come down with COVID? I mean, no, thankfully, a lot of people are vaccinated, myself included. But I think there are people are right to be concerned about, you know, variants potentially evading immunity. Um, long COVID, I think, is something that a lot of people, particularly young people, should should maybe, you know, be slightly concerned about. I mean, I as a young healthy person, I thankfully have never actually been worried about dying from COVID. I have been worried about like debilitating illness uh, after getting it. And I think that's something that, you know, even though I'm fully vaccinated, I'm certainly less worried about. But I think that's something that in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, gosh, like that's that's something I'd really like to avoid. Marie, do you think you're going to be sticking with the mask? Yes and no. So I think and that's maybe controversial. I think I'll definitely keep wearing it um, on public transport, but I'm yeah I'm, I, I don't know I, I'm basically in favour of keeping on public transport, but there are some situations where it just seems silly to me. So I work from a co-working space in central London, for example, mm. and so I have to put a mask on to get to my desk. Then I remove it, and then so everyone's there. It's so about you know about hundred of us there, and we'll be on our laptops, on Zoom calls, etc., talking to each other. No social distancing, no windows open, etc. And then if I want to go to the bathroom, I have to put my mask back on for that twenty second walk. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's not preventing any infections. You know, that's not something stuff like that. You know, I got told off in a pub recently because I went out for a bit and came back and I was told off for not putting my mask back on, despite my table being so close um, to the entrance that it was literally two steps. Um, and I got told <laughs> off for not putting it back on for those two steps, uh, which is very annoying. Um, so again, so stuff like that, you know, I think I will not wear my mask anymore for these things. But but yeah, no, of course, on public transport, I, I, I will keep um, wearing them. So I think it, it depends. I, mean, I suspect that the vast majority of people will go for a kind of similar mix and match approach, which I don't think is unreasonable. One of the um, main sort of characteristics of the unlocking thing is that effectively taking your taking the brakes off the virus will hit young people and children hardest because they're less likely to be vaccinated. And while they're less likely to to die and less likely to be hospitalised, they are equally susceptible to long COVID. Is, is the government essentially taking the people who don't vote for it, who can't vote for it, you know, assigning them a burden in this fight? Oh, I'm... Mm. I, you know, as you know, I've been on this podcast a number of times. Um, I rarely defend the government. Um, mm. But on this, and what I will point out, and what I didn't really get slash kind of find generally interesting is that I feel like the discourse about this time last year, and for, for most of kind of 2020 was, you know, why are you basically locking up young, healthy people in their, you know, 20s and 30s, etc. He will not get very ill from the virus. And you know, for whom the vast majority, you know, it would just be a cold in terms of severity. Um, you know, well, why are you doing all this just to protect all the people? Um, and then somehow I think, yeah, a year on, it switched back to, you know, oh, you know, like you're just kind of like throwing young people to the walls. And it's like, but actually, like, the facts have not really changed. Like, you know, I've, I've had COVID before, quite a lot of my friends have. I mm. was fine. It was annoying. I'm not going to pretend I enjoyed having COVID. <laughs> you know, I would not recommend it, but it was broadly fine. And I feel like that, that that's kind of a thing I worry people have forgotten a bit. And of course, you know, long COVID is an issue. But then I also believe that we need to start talking about long COVID and chronic COVID. So I technically had long COVID in that my symptoms came and went for about four months, but they were right. all quite minor. So, you know, they, they were not sort of like life-changing at all. It's just, you know, my t- uh, sense of taste and smell, for example, took a very long time to come back properly. Um, and my heart felt a bit weird as well for a few months. So technically, you know, I, I am counted as a long COVID sufferer. I'm entirely mm. fine now and I could still live my life nearly to the fullest, you know, um, during those weeks. Um, so so I, I do worry that, you know, people have slightly lost a sense of uh, of risk, I guess, you know, because again, I do know people who suffer from, you know, CFSME and stuff that they got after having the flu or, ha- have, you know, having a chest infection or something years and years ago. It is something that happens. I uh, hear we're going into an era of common sense. 
How much faith in common sense do you have for a country that likes to put nautical flares in its bomb crack to celebrate <laughs> football events? I don't think you can assign that to the collective. Uh, like, it's, <laughs> no, no, that was Britain. That, yeah. that guy is Britain. But for example, and equally, I don't wish to speak for everyone else on this podcast, but there is at <laughs> least one person in Britain who has never had a nautical flare up his ass, and that <laughs> man is me. Right. So Good to uh, know. <laughs> do, do I have faith in the common sense of a uh, nautical flare ass man? Probs not. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do I trust like my mum? Yes. <laughs> That's a sharp contrast there. I trust your mum as well. I've never even met your mum. But, but more seriously, the, the common sense question is uh, people have been asked to exercise common sense to protect themselves. But of course, the, the mask and other preventions don't necessarily protect you. They protect other people. So yes. ultimately, we're being asked to rely on the common sense of other people, some of whom may have nautical flares somewhere. I don't know. But it's like, <laughs> your common sense uh, is, it, it, you know, it's not like I can ex- exercise my common sense to protect myself. I'm dependent on someone else. Yeah. And that's the thing I find concerning. Yeah. Do you? Well, uh I mean, let's let's put it this way. Um, at, when I went to the loo at Wembley Stadium during halftime, I was very, very grateful to Sarah Gilbert and Catherine Green for the two doses of AstraZeneca uh, currently running through my veins, right? Uh, because there certainly didn't seem to be a great deal of uh, common sense on show there. But uh, hopefully, we can. I think that we need to look. If if I can, if I can trust that most people in this country aren't the sort of people who are directing uh, racial abuse at young men doing very well under intense pressure, then you can trust that the majority of people in this country aren't nautical flare ass men. What do we think uh, Monday's going to be like then? Monday, July the nineteenth. Is it going to be Hogarthian? I mean, I will personally be getting very drunk. Um, so <laughs> I am happy to admit that. Okay. <laughs> That seems like a reasonable response. <laughs> now, I'll see, yeah, the, the flare, I'll see about the flare. You know, I, I, I'll not buy it yet. But it, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a run on the uh, run on flares. <laughs> you might have missed it, but 17,000 Dutch citizens just took big oil to court. And for once, they won. In a landmark case, the civil court ruled that Shell must cut its CO2 emissions by 45% compared to 2019 levels by 2030. For the first time, a company has been legally obliged to align its policies with the Paris Climate Agreement. What does this really mean for business, though? We talk to somebody who knows. My name's Tessa Khan. I'm the founder and director of an organisation called Uplift, which is supporting the UK to move away from fossil fuels and to support a just transition. Last month, a Dutch court issued a historic decision against Royal Dutch Shell and it basically ordered Shell to reduce the emissions associated with Shell's products, namely oil and gas, by 45% by 2030. The main thing that really took people by surprise in a way is the fact that Shell is being held responsible not just for the greenhouse gas emissions associated with pulling oil and gas out of the ground, which is something that does in itself create emissions, but also the emissions associated with burning the oil and gas that Shell sells. It's significant for a number of reasons. There is increasing pressure on big oil and gas companies like Shell and BP and Exxon and so on, a lot of which are household names, to take responsibility for the fact that the products that they sell are driving the climate crisis in that the combustion of oil and gas is responsible for the overwhelming volume of carbon emissions that are in the atmosphere, which is what's causing the climate to change. And so a number of these companies have started to adopt targets to reduce the emissions that they're responsible for. And Shell is a classic example of a company that has this plan to reduce its emissions to get to net zero by 2050 And what the court found was that those targets and plans are in no way sufficient for Shell to meet its legal obligations under Dutch law. And what's significant is that basically in interpreting Dutch law, the court drew on a number of the international standards that apply to the actions of companies anywhere in the world, including the 
goals that have been agreed to under the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, international human rights standards that have some impact on all companies operating around the world. And so it really means that there's scope for this decision and the reasoning that underpins the decision to be replicated in other countries against other companies. So it sends a really powerful signal about the legal accountability of oil and gas companies um, for their role in the climate crisis, which until you know last month, they have more or less gotten away with. Campaigners and I should really say, you know, ordinary people who are already suffering from the impacts of climate change and the devastating heat waves across North America and other parts of the world that are breaking records at the moment are another indication of the way that we are already living with the impacts of the climate crisis. But people are very motivated to hold the biggest players who have responsibility for the climate crisis accountable. And certainly one of the most important impacts of this case is that it will force companies to take very seriously right now before they're taken to court the question of whether or not their emissions reductions plans actually stack up and whether or not they are a credible response to the threat that climate change poses um, and the role that these companies have in creating that crisis. There's a really interesting case actually currently in court in Germany which was brought by a farmer in Peru who lives in the Peruvian Andes and he's suing the biggest sort of German energy company RWE for basically RWE to pay the proportion of costs that his village will incur as a result of having to relocate because of melting glaciers in the Peruvian Andes in proportion to the amount of emissions that RWE is responsible for that are currently in the atmosphere. And so the amount that this guy is actually going to get out of RWE if he's successful is only about €20,000, but it would be an incredibly important precedent if he was successful in basically getting a fossil fuel company to accept that they have liability for the damage that his village, you know, which in many ways is at the front line of these impacts of climate change, is currently experiencing. Finally, summer travel is becoming a little bit more doable. As more countries are added to the green list, Italy and Bulgaria are expected to be added in this Thursday's review. Plus, from Monday the 19th, fully vaccinated UK passengers arriving from ambulance countries no longer have to quarantine. Although many holiday destinations are still not allowing the UK travellers in anyway. So you might get a holiday. And that got us thinking, which of our political figures could you most stand to spend a fortnight in an exotic jeet, yurt, villa or canvas tent with? And who would you least like to be stuck with? Marie Leconte, who is your perfect political partner for Les Grand Vacances? I kind of feel like Angela Rayner would be really fun. Like, because I mean, oh, I've been, so I've, I've never been on a proper sort of, you know, like, what what I call a basic bitch holiday, you know, proper sort of like <laughs> sipping cocktails with tiny umbrellas and then by the beach, you know, mogs for breakfast, mogs for lunch, mogs for dinner. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, I, but I've kind of, you know, always wanted to do one of those. And I feel like Angela Rayner would be really good at that. Like she's clearly someone you could get on the lash with, I feel. So that would definitely be my favourite one. Yeah, I mean, she does look, I mean, whatever you think about her politics, she does seem to be very good company. And she also, also seems to be a kind of person who wouldn't just talk about politics all the time. No, exactly. I think you could generally just have a really fun time with her. Mm, okay. And who would you least like to have in charge of the itinerary and the passports? I mean, I feel like that's such a long list. Like, I genuinely, mm. it, it is very hard to narrow down. I kind of ended up with Philip Davies because I can oh, right. imagine spending two weeks with Philip Davies. Because mm. um, we would because it's not it's not just the fact that he hates women. He's also just very uninteresting. So it's not even mm. oh, you know, we can skirt around the woman issue. And talk about other stuff. Like I feel like that's his only that his only passion in life is that he hates women. So that would be just yeah, really bad crack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, can you? I'm trying to think where he'd where he'd insist on going. It's uh, yeah, I imagine a very very tedious walking holiday somewhere oh, with a lot Christ. of him talking. Mm. Yeah, there'd be no escape. No, it'd be awful. It'd be awful. So I think yeah, that would be my worst one. Yasmin, who's your choice for around the world in eighty days? Sixty of them in quarantine. Oh, so does it have to be a British politician? <laughs> no, better because- if not actually. I feel like Angela Merkel would be a great planner. Like, I feel like I'm very good on the holiday of like, like, I feel like she'd have a spreadsheet, you know, like, I feel like she'd be able to make reservations. And like, she just strikes me as a very organized person to travel with. And I feel like I'm of the type, like in a group travel setting who likes to just go with the flow. So I feel like we'd 
we do quite well together. Do you think she'd she'd take you around ancient ruins and you'd learn a lot, or would she take would she take you to exciting looking factories and go? Do you realise they make more uh, ball bearings here than anywhere else in the world? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I'd have fun. Yeah, I, I mm. could see us going on like a little a little like sort of um, city like adventure or something. I feel like that'd be go to museums and say I don't know. I'd, I'd do anything with Angela, to be fair. She's going to be she's <laughs> she's going to have a lot of time on her hands soon. She enough, is. So. Well, maybe she can start um, doing this. She can be kind of Euro tour guide for people yeah. like yourself. She's the kind of person who, like, if you were dumped in the middle of a European city uh, on one of those kind of got to find your way home type uh, fake kidnapping things, she'd be really good to have on your side. She's very practically minded and can probably read maps in any, in any language going. But who's the political figure you'd least like to go trekking the Sierras with? I'm going to say Nigel Farage, but only because I feel like he would be the like the perfect picture of like the type of British tourist that none of the other countries like, like gets too drunk. Yes. So kind of wears tacky clothing. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably give that a miss. He's like the British version of the ugly American. You know, yeah, the, the yeah. ostentatious and stupid clothes. He, he gives us a run for our money, for sure. Yeah. Has there ever been anybody whose brand is being a bloody good chap, who's bloody great company, who is so obviously terrible company? You know, it's, it's hard to imagine <laughs> spending time with Farage. I, my other biggest concern is that he would potentially try to, like... I will, When I was trying to think of, like, who I wouldn't want to go traveling with, like particularly for British politicians, I was thinking like, who wouldn't let me back in the country? Or like, who would like question my work visa and be like, actually, you can stay out. So Yeah. And the alternative of just going strolling in the Cotswolds is somehow even worse. Uh, hey, Shah, how about you? Who would you most like to go interrailing with? Well, I mean, I, I was thinking Britain, but then when Yasmin chose Merkel and I realized that we could go further afield, I'm like, obviously Obama, 100%. Oh, right. A hundred percent. Like what, what a, what a top, like I almost feel shitty for taking that suggestion and meaning that none of you are allowed to go on holiday with Obama now because I've got him all to myself. I thought my counterpoint would be, would you not spend just two weeks with your brain just saying, fuck, I'm on a holiday with Obama. Oh my God, I'm on a holiday with Obama. <laughs> and that you could not do anything or relax or like, yeah, think about anything else. <laughs> yeah. I'd just be internally being like, oh my God, does he notice me? Does it, it yeah. <laughs> but I think this is the beginnings of a kind of, this is going to be I Hear's Buddy movie. Yeah. My, hol- my holiday with Barry. And it's <laughs> yeah. going to start out with I hear just absolutely thrilled to be in Obama's presence. And then little things that Obama did would start to get on your nerves. Like little, little <laughs> thing, he'd like, you know, he'd have a really annoying ringtone or something, or he'd, or, he'd, or he'd smoke a lot, or he'd just sort of, he'd be really picky with his food. And, and at the end of it, it and, that, and then that would, the second act would be you working through your, your contradictions with, the, with Barry. I'm trying to think <laughs> where you'd go, though. I mean, it, it, he would open, certainly open a lot of doors. You could yeah, go pretty sure. much anyway, couldn't you? Yeah, because you just walk into a restaurant and be like, can we have a table for two? It's like, well, no, we're fully booked. What if I was to tell you that one of us is Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> right this way, sir. But they, they would absolutely you know, insist that it was a lookalike and you just brought this guy in in order, in order to get the table. They wouldn't believe it really was him. Plus, could you deal with 20 Secret Service guys at the same time? I don't know. It'd be a but big ask. Even more friends. And we could play 11-a-side football. That'd be great. There you go. <laughs> And who would be the nightmare in your cabin on the SS here? I think Ted Cruz. I think that... <laughs> but he'd take you to Cancun. He would take you to Cancun and he'd leave you there. Unacceptable time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just think that he, like... I don't, I don't know. There's just... There's there's an air to him uh, that means, like, I've, I've never... I don't think I've ever been less interested in hanging out with a person or really heard of anyone with, like... Because normally you're like, oh, well, at least his fr- like he's got friends and his friends like him. But it seems like even people who know him, everyone thinks he's an asshole. So yeah. I think that he would be he would be the absolute nightmare. Even his friends hate him. Yeah. I, but, but then again, as you're coming up with great IP here. A cruise with cruise is, is really <laughs> reality channel gold, isn't it? This week, well, Ted goes knocking around the... You know, the Caribbean with comedian out here, Shah. <laughs> I remember the screenwriter, uh, Craig Mazin, the guy who wrote Chernobyl, uh, among other things. Uh, he was Cruz's university roommate, uh, I think. And what? certainly the way that he described the experience was not particularly pleasant. Uh, so uh, a cabin and seasickness and Ted Cruz probably wouldn't be ideal. 
What inspired Craig Mazin to write a TV series about an intensely mendacious bunch of people who told massive <laughs> lies that came with terrible, terrible consequences? <laughs> yes, we'll never know. Uh, my choice is, I think, the best person, uh, you know, uh, obviously the best person to go on holiday with any kind of holiday has got to be Rory Stewart, just because he's so practical and so interesting. I'm just imagining oh. trekking around the ancient ruins of Greece. He'd know a lot about those things. You get stuck out in a forest. Rory can catch you something to eat. And he'd probably tell you an amusing anecdote about, you know, how he was, you know, tracking down Osama bin Laden on his own while he was doing it. Um, you name it, anything. It would be, it would be like a kind of triple A star scouting holiday with Rory in charge. So I, I actually, you know, I, I'm sort of slightly daydreaming about a holiday with Rory Stewart now. The least, <laughs> I think politics, you know, the uh, politicians are monomaniacs. And I think any of the monomaniacs would be the worst. The people who've only really got one thing to talk about. And, you know, I hate to sound like an obsessive, but can you imagine going on holiday with Jeremy Corbyn, who would <laughs> simply keep telling you about the provenance of this food wasn't quite right or, you know, the country that you're in had all sorts of, you know, problems and you really should think again about the things that you're enjoying. I just would find it, it, it strikes me as just when he's never off. And I, I think, I, I think I might, I think I might feel a little bit judged. But so Andrew, probably here's not the, him. Here's the thing about uh, sport as a unifying factor, as we've talked about, you know, you're a Liverpool fan. He's a big Arsenal fan. You could at least talk about that. You've got something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, we could. We could. But I can't even imagine that being too much fun. I think it will be too much like hard work. I'm sticking with Rory Stewart. I'm calling Rory right now. I'm packing my bag. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. And as usual, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books, miscellaneous, whatever it is that's taken our panelist minds away from the nerve wracking world of politics? Yasmin, how about you? What have you uh, been reading and listening to? Well, now that the Euros are over, I'm going to be returning to my regularly scheduled programming, which is Love Island. It's basically this whole summer has been like the summer of 2018 all over again. You basically mm. have football in Love Island. So, I've yeah, I've been kind of just letting my brain melt over that. And we'll be doing so for several weeks. What's the latest development? What's, how, how's the power, power dynamic working out? I'm also, I missed... Last night's episode, because of the football, obviously, I don't even know why they bothered actually airing during the Euros. I mean, it's it's kind of just a, a lot of the same. I feel like we're still getting to know the characters, if that makes sense. Like, you kind of go in and it's really, like, kind of sort of difficult to suss out, like, who's the funny one in the villa and, like, who who you like and dislike. I, I have a couple of favorites, but there are, like, been moments that have come up where I'm like, oh, please don't do anything bad. Like, I really like liking you. So we'll see. So they're taking the slow burn approach, like like uh, like The Wire, <laughs> yeah, novelistic, they, Dickensian. They they've kind of tried to keep it a little interesting. I don't want to give spoilers, so yeah, I would just tell people they're 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 clearly trying to mix it up a little bit by like doing some things I don't think they've done in previous seasons. I hear. How about you? What are you uh, diverting your mind with now that football has left you forever for three yeah, weeks? Uh, <laughs> well. I've been so actually, Yasmin, you'll be able to tell me. So I watched like the first two episodes of Love Island and then I stopped. And like, can you can you pick it back up? Is that a thing that you can do or has just too much changed and I won't know anyone who's in it and whatnot? I think you can pick it back up. I mean, so to be honest, the only reason I started watching Love Island is because when I moved here, I was told that like to get Britain culturally, I had to watch it. <laughs> and it was a great I know. I don't know what that says about everyone but um it was a great, wonderful love island great that flares up our like, asses that's who we are to the world <laughs> that's the ethos yeah um it was a great <laughs> lesson for accents for me like it took about three episodes of subtitles before i could take them off and understand a liverpudlian accent which was oh, um oh, quite an achievement nice. i think you can pick it up i mean some people are quite you know it's the little things will have changed but like you'll i think a lot of the people are still the same so yeah go for it so my route has been, uh, so whenever I have an intensely long to-do list, I tend to re-watch series that I watched a long time ago in order to distract me from the reality of that. And so I'm currently embarking on a rewatch of Angel, which I've got oh, because wow. I, did Buffy too, I did Buffy too recently to do that one again. And it's on Disney Plus now. And uh, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's very good uh, sort of in a, in a corner of your monitor when the rest of it is taken up by spreadsheets that you're trying to ignore. Marie, what's your uh, escape route? 
I, so, <laughs> this is going to sound so sad, but I, I tried to think about it for so long and there's generally been nothing recently. So I've not just been watching the games, to be clear. Like, I, I went into an extent that was deeply unhealthy. So I believe <laughs> I have watched every single YouTube video put out by the England team over the past like few weeks. On, was on Saturday, I sat on my couch for three hours, three entire hours, and just watched YouTube videos of the players. So wow. I, I really, I'm, I'm a very, very sick woman. Um, but yeah, so that's <laughs> all I've been doing. Um, again, I mean, the videos are great. It's kind of like ASMR, I guess. I'm not really into ASMR, but it, it, it's, you know, but it does, no, it's just videos of them sort of, you know, training and stretching in silence. It, it, it's just that for sort of like half an hour at a time. It's amazing. What are you going to do now? You've got to go cold turkey on this. Um, well, it's not going to be easy, I think. Um, but uh, but no, I think I'm actually finally going to watch Loki, um, the Marvel yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I had been looking forward to. Um, but I wanted to because, again, I'm kind of an obsessive woman. So I was like, I'm going to do my football obsession first and then I can obsess over Loki next. So I think I'm going to start that tonight. You're in for such a treat. It's so fantastic. My escape route, boringly, because I'm old, I'm reading The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which I'd never read before. And I thought I was looking for something that was so different and distant from now, where people were dis- were different and the time and the place and the setting were different, but related to now. And um, it's fantastic. It is, you know, you'll, you know, you'll be surprised to learn. Beautifully, <laughs> intricately plotted, amazing characterization, truly believable in a way that, okay, none of us has ever had anything to do with espionage at all, but it really rings true. But the most important thing is that it's just truthful about people. And I, I, I'm absolutely thrilled and I'm going on a massive uh, John le Carre jag at the moment because i'm a middle-aged man <laughs> well you say none of us have any experience with espionage but i suppose you can ask rory stewart on your holiday i can ask rory stewart or maybe i can ask arthur snell when he comes back on the podcast hem hem saying nothing and that <laughs> is the end of this week's bunker thanks to i hear Shah. thank you thanks to marilla Kant. oh thanks for having me and thanks to yasmin sohan thank you We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, your favourite app, whatever you use. Remember, if you'd like to support our work and keep us going, uh, you can support The Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcast early, you'll get our splendid merchandise, and you can get a discount on tickets to that live show on Tuesday the 10th of August. Thanks for listening. Remember, back again, honorary salute on the show, and here are some now. Thanks for backing us to Nigel Rumsey, Andrea Arkstrom, and Phil Hodes. Thank you from me to Imogen Robertson, Mark Collier, and Nick Lockington. Thank you for your support from me to James Harvey, Anthony Martin, and Alison Banks. And finally, a big salute from me to Jenny, Robert Stark, and Michelle, M-E-C-H-E-L-L-E. Hmm, what an interesting way to spell your name. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Ahir Shah, Yasmin Saran, and Marie Lacan. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.